Radical Women Talk Shit. Welcome, Radical listeners. I am your host, Jamee, and with me is Kat, and we are Radical Women Talk Shit, and we'd like to thank you for stopping by to listen to our radical take on radical affairs. So today, this is a special episode. This will be an ongoing discussion in three parts about police abolition. And the reason this uh, story is important to the both of us is it is the reason that Radical Women Talk Shit even exists as a Mm -hmm. podcast. And Kat and I got together over the summer and wanted to research exactly what was abolishing the police, what did that entail, and to lay waste to some of the myths that we were hearing about, oh, well, women should automatically not support police abolition. The police are here to protect us from violent people and the whole nine. So we just wanted to kind of make sense of uh, the confusion about the social and political unrest. And as average women, just seeking to make sense of a fucked up situation. That's right. We were really confused because, you know, we've been in radical circles for a long time and have seen definitely, I personally have seen several testimonies from women where they talk about how the police don't help them. And then if women in radical feminism had an opinion on police abolition at all, it seemed to be negative as if we need the police to support us. So, um, yeah, this is the, the, the work of, of two months of effort by two independent people. You know, we're not experts in police abolition, um, but we tried to make ourselves experts by doing the research. Indeed, indeed. So let's start with like our, just our cred a little bit. Well, I, um, I have a criminal justice degree. I wanted to be a police officer and halfway through my studies for my bachelor's, I realized that something was really wrong with policing, period and learning about just the corruption aspect of it, the history of policing, um, just the criminological models that we still use from the 1800s and just, it was ridiculous. And And then learning about civil forfeiture was just mind blowing because it essentially turns police officers into highwaymen Jesus. And yeah, uh, I was shocked. So what sealed it, what I, when I knew I didn't want any parts of law enforcement was we were in criminal law too. And in that class with me was a Prince George's County, Maryland police officer. He had been on the force for four years and we were talking about the Fourth Amendment search and seizure. He didn't know anything about it, but he was a police officer for four years. That's scary. Wow. I mean, that's That's like fucking scary. That's not state or local laws. That's the constitution of the United States. Exactly. Exactly. So I, that just made me instantly afraid. And what 
added to that was all of the high profile cases happening as this is going on as well. And I, I just, uh, I just, just fed up like right, like right before I got into school, the FBI released that report of the infiltration of white supremacy. So that sealed it for me. Wow. And we're going to get into that in detail later. Um, my story is nowhere near similar. I'm a teacher and I have a master's degree in education and I've been working on that for a long time. But uh, if the world of policing has colored my life since I was a child because I was raised by a New York City police officer who never failed to remind me and my siblings that he was on the force for 22 years. Um, and I grew up in an environment of uh, machismo and authority and um definitely police superiority uh, and at the same time racism, xenophobia, ignorance and uh, woman hating, woman blaming uh, thanks to my parents divorce so that was great uh, I also wanted to be a cop for a little while when I was a little kid but mm -hmm. that didn't last very long once I started uh, learning things in school and being able to have arguments with my father who was no more educated than your average Trump supporter mm -hmm. uh, and uh um, I, just having memories in my mind of, of him telling these ridiculous and sometimes funny stories about being, being a police officer um, while at the same time learning about uh, issues of racism and bigotry. Um, and then hearing, hearing my father at one point mocking people who advocate for civil rights, um, he would literally go up into a, like a falsetto voice. He was like, oh, I'm a liberal. And what about my civil rights? Don't beat me. And like, these were the kind of jokes that he would make in the car with us. when We were like nine, 10 years old. Oh my. So, so growing up with a police officer um, and then unlearning all of the things I had learned from that police officer uh, has been significant in my life. And um, I like to think that being here discussing the abolition of the police department would have him rolling over in his grave. So thanks, dad. There you go. There we go. Let's get so, started. All right. So in these three parts, uh, we, we, we seek to, we, we well, at least we attempted to identify what police violence is and why it's a feminist issue uh, to educate people on what police abolition really means and not what the media and brain dead morons say it is uh, to provide talking points to people so that you can use in your your discussions and your debates and your interactions with the people close to you, uh, discuss current abolition models and how our needs as women are being met. And finally, to activate women to engage in challenging their own biases and opening the door for further discussion. And we, we just, we simply, we want to change the way policing is in its current form. It no longer serves the needs of our community. In fact, it never has, mm -mm. never has. And in order to create something new that better suits the needs of the many and not the very few, we need to implore real life action and change. And with that, we can have something much better for our community and as women. 
Yeah, definitely, for sure. So we're actually going to be exploring this in three parts. Today is part one, where we talk about police violence uh, in and of itself, as well as the history of policing. Uh, part two, we're going to be talking about how this specifically relates to issues of violence against women and women's lives. Uh, and in part three, we'll go deeper into the argument for police abolition. So part one. All right. Yeah. So get into it. So what is police violence? Kat, what do you think police violence is? Uh, well, I'm going to assume that based on the news, it has a lot to do with shooting people. Uh, but I think that the definition is a little bit wider than that. It certainly is. And the legally defined definition of police violence is a civil rights violation that occurs when a police officer acts with excessive force by using an amount of force with regards to a citizen that is more than necessary. So, and using excessive force, of course, is a direct violation of the Fifth and Fourteenth Amendments of the Constitution regarding cruelty and protection of the law. And this includes, but not limited to bullying, physical harassment, physical and mental injury, property damage, and death. But excessive force isn't subject to a precise definition. It's generally beyond the force reasonable that you would need in order to accomplish something. Isn't that kind of a loaded thing though? It is because the police are left with a lot of discretion in regards to what force is needed to arrest someone, subdue. And it seems like a lot of those tactics fail to address de-escalating situations. It seems that all of the interactions with police seem to agitate situations. And I just, I don't understand that. So it leaves a lot of wiggle room for the police officer to define what that is. Because they can say that you're resisting arrest. And in fact, that's all they have to say. Not saying that it's true. They just have to say it. And it justifies you looking like a bloodied sack of potatoes in the back of their car because um, you resisted arrest. You see what I'm saying? Right. They get to make the rules. And we're going to talk about that later in terms of misconduct. But it's dangerous to say that the idea of excessive force is basically defined in such a way that, you know, the actual application of that concept is determined by the very people who could abuse it. Correct. They're not policing the They're police. They're not policing the police. They are the ones responsible for setting those uh, regulations, those rules, and monitoring it. Not us. Right, right. So when it comes to discussing police violence, um, I think most of us, again, are aware of the type of gun violence, the shooting, uh, the murder, uh, the kneeling on necks of people, uh, and the, those types of uh, police violence, police brutality, but it's actually a much wider definition than one might think. Uh, so yes, it includes uh, unlawful police shootings, but it's also choke holds and other measures that stop a person from breathing, uh, 
beatings with billy clubs, flashlights, firearms, or fists, or anything else that can cause severe damage. It includes sodomy. And let me tell you, who was that? That was Abner Luima yes. from years ago. Like, I was a child when that happened, and that, that messed me up. Me too. I remember okay. when that happened, because that was uh, mid-90s, right? Yeah. When that happened. So I just didn't understand how you could go from arresting someone to sodomizing them with a nightstick. Like, how did you get there? That's a level of hate and abuse that sure. um, that nobody should have the power to, to, to do that. And nor should anybody be able to get away with that. Um, continuing, there's stop and frisk, which is completely and totally legal. Um, the groping of privates and other forms of sexual assault, which are rather common. Use of less than lethal methods, such as pepper spray and rubber bullets, especially aimed at heads and faces and used in ways and that they're not intended to be used. We've seen that in, in recent uh, protests, that they go for the eyes. For sure. They don't care that you're press or anything. Nothing matters. Right. Uh, it also includes intimidation tactics, um, that's threats basically, use of racial, sexual, or anti-gay or lesbian slurs, theft of property. I had a friend once who told me a cop stopped and frisked him, took out his wallet, opened it up, took the cash out, gave him his wallet back. That well, is called- What the hell is he gonna do about it? Civil forfeiture right there. <laughs> what's gonna happen, how that cop would cover his ass. No, listen. How that cop would cover, yeah, how he would cover his ass would be, okay, in the process of conducting an investigation, we have reason to believe that he has the proceeds of a drug buy, or he was about to engage in prostitution, uh, that that money somehow had a, something to do with that crime. So that money immediately becomes evidence. And in order- that's it is fucked up. And in order to get the shit back, you have to go to court and lawyers are expensive. See, I don't understand how that myth got started, that pervasive myth of litigation among broke and average income people, because lawyers are fucking expensive. And some people just, you don't even have the money to inquire on what your rights are. So you just chalk it up as a loss. That, you know, your your cash is gone. Your car is gone. You know, just. Yeah, I mean, I think there's only an argument to be made in, in the case of um, personal injury where they don't collect unless they win and then they can take up to 33%. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but. That's messed up because then if nobody, if you, if, if the person that you're assaulting to take the money can't afford a lawyer, then you can just keep that money. You don't need to report that. And that's right. something that we need, that we're going to talk about later about omitting reports and not filling out reports completely. Um, but lastly, the last uh, example or common example of police violence that we wanted to make mention of is the denial of a person of food, water, or medicine while they're in custody for extended periods of time. So this, this could be anywhere from just basic dehydration to making sure a woman doesn't have her second pill from her, um, you know, her plan B pill, you know what I'm saying? So, so let's start talking about some data. 
So for starters, there is an increasing trend in the number of justifiable homicides, according to the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. Jamaica, can you tell us a little bit about justifiable homicides? Oh, gosh, justifiable homicides. Do you hear how that sounds? Mm -hmm. And it goes in line of what I was describing, the legal definition of police violence and their discretion level justifiable homicide. So if I'm resisting arrest and I die in the process of this arrest, that's a justifiable homicide. And then and let's get into the definition of what homicide means. The deliberate and unlawful killing of one person by another. The deliberate and unlawful killing. So how do you have justifiable homicide? That doesn't make any sense. It seems like an oxymoron. And with the numbers that we have been seeing, police officers fatally shoot about three people per day on average. And police that have been exposed to war, say the Afghan and Iraqi vets coming back, they have a 50% higher rate of excessive force complaints than non-veterans. And this is according to internal Boston PD documents. Right. And when you think about um, police violence on the whole, there is a project called Mapping Police Violence that specifically tracks the number of people who have been killed by police. And so far, as of this recording, police have killed 861 people in 2020. Um, at least 37 of them are female or trans-identified females. Uh, at least 426 women have died since 2013 based on the data that they have collected. And so this is police brutality only in terms of killing people. Uh, it doesn't include all other forms of misconduct, which we'll talk about. And, and let's also talk about with gathering this data too, that this is what we could find. This isn't something that is um, tracked diligently by anyone. Right, so let me explain. The, the, the issue of use of force has been logged by what's called LEMAS, which is the Law Enforcement Management and Administrative Statistics Survey. Now, this is a survey that's performed every couple of years to, to gather data on law enforcement agencies and what tools they use, what their policies are, things in writing, et cetera, et cetera. So I went through all of the LEMAS surveys that have been brought out since 2003. And 2003 is the last year where they actually reported any sort of statistics on what happened with use of force complaints. So that's why this information is not fully up to date is because this information hasn't been collected in 17 years. And the last LEMOS was 2016. But from what we were able to find in 2003, a report based on Lee Moss from the Bureau of Justice, uh, Justice Statistics showed that during 2002, large state and local law enforcement agencies representing about 5% of agencies and 59% of officers received a total of 26,556 citizen complaints about police use of force. This corresponds to an overall rate of 6.6 .6 force complaints per 100 full-time sworn officers. Ouch. Of those complaints, yeah, that's a lot. 
I mean, could you imagine if, you know, six teachers hit per hundred teachers hit children? Right. <laughs> we would lose our job. Like those are six teachers who would lose their jobs. Right. right. And I don't think that that's a number that you can look at and be like, okay, well, you know, some breakage is in order. So have at it. <laughs> right. And so the, the issue then becomes what happens to those use of force complaints? Well, a third of all of those force complaints in 2002 were not sustained. 25% were considered unfounded. 23% went to court and resulted in officers being exonerated and 8% were sustained, which means that there was most likely some sort of recourse or some sort of response. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean that an officer was fired or let go. It could mean that there's a letter in their file. Mm -hmm. It could mean that there was a short-term suspension. So, and this is a really concerning uh, set of statistics because of the blue wall of silence, the public perception that police officers don't take citizen complaints seriously. I mean, how do you argue with that perception with numbers like this? Right. and then the rabidness of police unions that defend and sometimes uh, support and advocate for police violence or training that supports police violence, like warrior training. Oh, definitely. So let's talk a little bit more about the problems with collecting this data. Jermaine? It is completely fucking voluntary. There, it's not mandatory. Nobody. It, it, I, this is the part I don't understand. It's like, how do you... How is this just voluntary that you can, oh, well, give us this information if you want. And I, it should be alarming because the, everyone should be fucking mad. See, I can't even form words, but, (laughs) and the fact that this isn't public information and dutifully tracked by a federal agency is beyond me. And whenever something does happen to a citizen where we're seeing a video of a flat out murder or an arrest that is ridiculously violent, they basically put the cops on administrative leave, conduct an investigation. And then we get this largely worded policy that would never that's never followed. And. All of this data that we've gathered, like you said earlier, Kat, that it has enormous gaps. You can't do this uniformly if the information is given voluntarily. So then the records that we came up with are from news sources, Washington Post, ProPublica, USA Today. are maintaining databases on these cases. And that is just frightening. And the police are supposedly concerned with this, right? You know, and they don't want the public to have this perception of them, right? You You would think that this would be one of the things that would happen, this accountability. Right. Except there is very little accountability. And I want to show you some data that um, I came up with uh, earlier because from the 2006 Lima survey, uh, it doesn't really have that misconduct data, but this is what it did say. It said, if there's a deadly use of force, the external investigation of that deadly use of a firearm is only required in about 51% of precincts. By external investigation, we're talking about a civilian review board or somebody that's not under the chain of the command of the police department. So that is 
just slightly more than half, which is alarming because that really means that the police would be in, in 49% of these precincts investigating their own crimes. Yep. Um, 87.6% of precincts have no civilian review board at all. Uh, of the ones that do, the majority do not have independent subpoena power. So they don't have an enormous amount of power just as it is. Uh, over half have no written policy about investigating the circumstances separately outside of the chain of command. So um, that becomes a major issue because then the idea of civilian complaint review boards as a form of oversight are also completely ineffective. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in depth when we talk about pro, uh, what they what they discovered on ProPublica. And why this is so important, because think about it, the voluntary information, no police departments from Florida reported any homicides caused by police in the third most populous state in the country wasn't logged by the FBI. And, right. and then for the New York City Police Department, by far the country's largest, submitted data for just one year during the last decade. That's One crazy. Year. And the FBI recorded only basic personal details of each person killed and no information, no information such as whether those persons were armed, a critical factor in ongoing debates on the use of force by police, because that's always what they say. Oh, they had a, they had a weapon. I fear for my life. I needed to shoot them. <laughs> uh, it's, it's funny because we're going to talk about that later too oh definitely uh police departments apply unsystematic approaches to recording many of these high profile deaths over the recent years and some of them were logged and some of them were filed to a separate category with general homicides without noting that the subjects were even killed by police and others were just completely ignored. And details of other controversial deaths that prompted protests were entered incorrectly in the FBI database, which damaged government efforts to monitor demographic information about people killed by police. So it's like they don't want this information collected. We're supposed to just trust that everything is on the up and up. Data means accountability. A data-driven approach is an approach that's informed by science. And the thing is, is that if you actually have accurate data that's collected, then what will likely happen is that we'll see exactly what everybody's been talking about. But until we have that data, we can't act on anything. So the result is what we're left with is um, the valiant efforts of journalists. So during the summer, USA Today released a database of 85,000 reports of police misconduct. So misconduct reports are typically hidden from the public and they shouldn't be. Their database includes over 200,000 cases of misconduct and records of 30,000 officers who have been decertified. So among their findings, 
Most misconduct involves routine infractions, but the records reveal tens of thousands of cases of serious misconduct and abuse. They include 22,924 investigations of officers using excessive force, 3,145 allegations of rape, child molestation, and other sexual misconduct, and 2,300, right, and 2,307 cases of domestic violence by officers. And we're going to explore those crimes more deeply in part two. Uh, dishonesty also is a frequent problem. The records document that at least 2,227 instances of perjury, tampering with evidence or witnesses or falsifying reports. There were 418 reports of officers obstructing investigations, most often when they or someone they knew were targets. That's that blue wall of silence again. Less than 10% of, of officers in most police forces get investigated for misconduct, yet some officers are consistently under investigation. Nearly 2,500 have been investigated on 10 or more charges. 20 faced 100 or more allegations, yet kept their badges for years. This data just demonstrates that the system repeatedly is standing in support of police officers who have a repeated pattern of abuse and, and they make sure that this abuse never comes to light if they can avoid it. The only reason why these reports were unearthed, this and by ProPublica, is because of a change in law that allowed these records to be requested. So in July 2020, ProPublica looked up complaints from the NYPD specifically. There were 12,000 complaints from almost 4,000 officers, 7,600 allegations of excessive force, 20,000 abuses of authority, 7,600 complaints of rude or profane behavior, and 700 complaints of using slurs, mostly based on race or gender, um, meaning sex also. So we're talking about calling female uh, people whores, calling women um, bitches, bitches uh, etc. Cunt. Yeah, and like, uh, are we just going to list all of them now? Right? Because so they're slurs. They are slurs. Broad. Mm -hmm. um, I don't check. So all of them? Chica. Girl, <laughs> sweetie, baby girl. Oh my God, I can't stand that. No. <laughs> um, so now, this is uh, specific to New York, what ProPublica put out. Um, and in reading an article about some of the information that they discovered, first off, they've been doing a series of articles in collaboration with the Marshall Project, the city, and WNYC slash Gothamist. Um, of this information, they found loads of documents that were redacted, documents that were erased upon follow-up, um, they have examples of voiding arrests, which is strange because you can, uh, not voiding arrests, but um, voiding a stop and frisk report, which is strange because the whole point of stop and frisk is to have those reports. Um, they can void an arrest, but they voided a stop report, which is basically erasing the stop like it didn't happen, oh, which boy. means that whatever misconduct happened is then gone with it um so so let me let me clarify this so some some choice quotes from this ProPublica article despite its legal obligations the nypd has been withholding significant evidence and undermining investigations of alleged abuse it has stopped sharing a wide variety of paper records and has been redacting the names of potential witnesses from others without explanation 
For two months this year, it allowed officers to refuse to be interviewed by CCRB, that's Civilian Complaint Review Board, investigators. And critically, it often doesn't produce body-worn camera footage. An internal CCRB menu, uh, memo obtained by ProPublica enumerates roughly a dozen kinds of records withheld or redacted across the board. Warrants, arrest records, documents listing who was in station house cells, key for finding witnesses, even officer injury reports. And so this is what I mean when these things, when these documents are ending up redacted, they're coming in with large pieces of, of, of text that are blacked out completely, uh, documents that are erased upon follow-up. So if you call to follow up on a report, they're saying this document is not here. Um, a stop report was in, in the article, they mentioned a stop report that basically disappeared when it shouldn't. A stop report is a matter of record. Um, that they've disallowed interviews uh, when the CCRB requests them or that they intentionally delay those interviews in order to make it more difficult for the CCRB to do their reviews. And so wow. what happens is, uh, as it says in this fourth paragraph here, yet hindered by the NYPD's recalcitrance, the CCRB is only able to substantiate a small fraction of the cases it receives. In 2018, it looked into about 3,000 allegations of misuse of force and was able to substantiate 73. So that is an issue when you're talking about having this data taken away. And this review board is supposed to be providing some level of oversight, but they're intentionally making it difficult to get that oversight. And the result is that these claims are not substantiated when they might be or should be if the data were openly shared. The CCRB does have subpoena power, although not all civilian complaint review boards do have subpoena power. In fact, the majority don't. Uh, but the CCRB in New York does, so they could sue the NYPD. But current and former CCRB officials told ProPublica that they couldn't recall a time that it has done so. The agency is effectively under the control of the mayor who historically has chosen the CCRB's leaders. And if you know anything about New York City and you know anything about Bill de Blasio, he is the least popular Democrat in, in New York right now, for sure. Um, and he has always been on a, a pro-policing bent uh, and has continued to enable this to happen. When, if I recall... Yeah, Biden is going to do exactly the same thing. He has no intention of actually reforming the police. Yeah, he wants to throw more money at it. He wants to give them more money. Right. And I don't see how that is going to help. That's just going to aid them in buying more munitions to fire at us when we're protesting the system. Right. Or I guess, you know, if you want to follow Biden's logic, you could just shoot people in the leg. In the leg. That makes there everything you go. better. Um, but unfortunately, there really is no net, there's no necessity because of the power of police unions, the power of the police vote and, and the public perception of the police as, as supporting the people. Um, there really is no advantage to either the Republicans or the Democrats taking a hard stand on police accountability. So you have the right who is like absolutely reliant on the white male supremacy within the department. Um, and then you have uh, the liberals who, for all intents and purposes, need to maintain a hard on crime persona so that they can continue to get the votes that they get from from centrists and moderates and stuff. Right. It's 
Indeed. So on top of all this, you know, there, like mentioned before, there are officers that are decertified or basically fired, but this is not enough. So there is the IADLIST. I'm going to call it the IDLIST. It's the, mm. the International Association of Directors of Law Enforcement Standards and Training. Um, so they have a database. So officers who are uh, decertified, that means they lose their certification to be an officer, are sometimes indexed in a database. Um, one national database is the IDLIST database. However, inclusion in the database does not necessarily preclude any individual from appointment as an officer. This is significant because the certification standards are not uniform across the country. And as of right now, six states don't have state level authority to decertify officers who commit misconduct. These states are New York, New Jersey, Massachusetts, Hawaii, California, and Rhode Island. So if these officers do some sort of misconduct, the states don't have state level authority to, de to decertify them. Ah, okay. So... So that's an issue right there. But when they are decertified and put in one of these databases, it doesn't necessarily matter because you get what's called the phenomenon of wandering officers. Wandering officers are basically officers who wander from agency to agency. So because of holes in decertification indexes or because they might go to a smaller local uh, agency that doesn't have money to run background checks or just doesn't run background checks, or they're so in need of officers that they're willing to hire anybody, officers with histories of misconduct are able to be rehired elsewhere rather than be forced to seek a different profession where they don't have the power to, to use force and use violence on people. And so these officers are more likely to have histories of misconduct or moral failings, according to the Washington Post. So basically, they can go from, from agency to agency, be let go every couple of years, and still find their way um, through into the next job. Ouch. So what happens is, like mentioned before, real reform can't happen because there's no political advantage to pushing strongly for it. There's also no data that forces the the public to really, um, to, to it doesn't give the public the tools that they need in order to combat this. So there's no reason for anybody to change it. Neither major party will ever commit to any effective change as we can see it. So what this means is, and I'm going to give you a hypothetical now. You're a police officer. You can... Stop and frisk somebody. In the meantime, sexually assault them. You can take their property. You can use some sort of force. You can either get away with not being punished. You can erase the report as if it didn't happen. Okay? Or the report is filed and it's considered unsubstantiated. So then you continue to keep your job. Or the report is filed and redacted and hidden away so that nobody ever sees it again, and then you still keep your job. If on the off chance you are actually brought to some sort of justice from within, you might be subject, depending on, um, on, on what was logged and documented, you might be subjected to some small form of punishment. Again, a letter in the file or some sort of temporary suspension. Um, worst case scenario, you get decertified and you're fired, but you can then move on to a different agency where you can go ahead and commit the same acts again. Yeah. The civilian complaint review board that would follow up on your crimes or, or on the crimes that you experienced 
would never get the go ahead to actually complete an investigation in any way that would be meaningful because everything would be slowed down for them. So this is really, and, and when we're talking about misconduct, including sexual violence, rape and domestic violence and child molestation, we have a real issue here. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. So it's like, what makes our system of policing different? And for that, we need to go into the history of the United States police force. I, I've always wondered, and this was part of me deciding that I didn't want to be a police officer. I, didn't, I had no idea. But you think that the police, their purpose is to serve and protect. Well, let's let's talk about a little historical background on the development of policing in the United States. It followed the development of policing in England. And in the early U.S., policing took two forms. First, it was referred to as the watch. Now, the watch system was comprised of community volunteers whose primary duty was to warn of impending danger and to protect uh, property. And they weren't particularly effective as a crime control device because they often slept and drank on duty. And while the watch was voluntary, many of the volunteers were simply there to uh, evade military service or they were given a sentence of community service by the locale that they lived in or or they were performing the watch duties as a form of punishment. So and this type of policing was employed by the wealthy and this was a means to protect their shit. They needed to protect their houses and uh, material goods. So, and this continued until well after the American Revolution. And it wasn't until the 1830s that the idea of a centralized municipal police department first emerged in the United States. And our country was no longer a collection of small cities and rural outlying areas. The U.S. was growing by leaps and bounds. And the old informal watch system was no longer adequate for our needs. And more than crying, uh, modern police forces in the United States emerged as a response to disorder. And these economic interests had a greater interest in social control than crime control. So anything to keep workers at bay, rich people stuff protected was all good on them. It, wasn't set up to serve our needs at all. And it all it all depended on what rich people thought should happen, what crimes should be controlled. And in the cities in the 19th century America, these obviously like they are today defined by corporations. Those taxes and their political influence supports the development of these bureaucratic policing institutions. Since our modern police force is not a direct response to crime, then what's it a direct response to? Well, of course, it is, again, the corporate elites needing a mechanism to ensure a stable and orderly workforce. 
and the maintenance of what they refer to as the collective good. And that's protecting the interests of businessmen and their property. And that's the sole reason that this centralized police force was put together. And the foundations were, the, the basic foundations were that they were publicly supported and bureaucratic informed. Uh, police officers were full-time employees, not community volunteers or case-by-case -case, uh, jobs. They had departments uh, with permanent and fixed rules and procedures, as well as employment of the officers being continuous. So, and then police departments were accountable to a central governmental authority. So that's it in a nutshell. So what else was happening around 1830? Well, let's consider that time period. In 1831, Nat's slave rebellion took place Lloyd, William Lloyd Garrison became a major voice in slavery in the slavery abolition movement. And the next 30 years would see 75,000 enslaved black people escaping to the north. The Underground Railroad conducted conductors, most famously Harriet Tubman, hit their stride in rescuing enslaved people and smuggling them north to freedom. In 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act was passed. And the Fugitive Slave Act meant that the United States government could get involved in returning slaves to their owners because slaves were considered property. And then right behind that was the Dred Scott decision that certified that enslaved people did not have citizenship of this country. And that was the first model of policing. Now, the second, of course, slave patrols. This was the model of the police forces in the South. In the Southern states, the slave patrols had three primary functions, to chase down, apprehend, and return to their owners' slaves, their property. It just makes me sick, just oh, saying it, but to provide a form of organized terror to deter slave revolts, because you can't have these people, you know, asserting their right, their human rights to not be owned as fucking property by another person. And to maintain a form of discipline for slave workers who were subjected to summary violence outside of the law if they violated plantation rules. So if you didn't get enough of an ass whooping by the plantation owner, then the cops could come over and whoop on you for not following the fucking rules. So, so following the Civil War, these vigilante style organizations evolved in modern, into the modern Southern police departments. And this was a means of controlling freed slaves who were now laborers in the new Jim Crow South. These Jim Crow laws, these segregation laws, were designed to de deny freed slaves the equal rights and ex access to the political system. They didn't want them to vote and they wanted them to remain a second class citizen or not even a citizen at all, property. Mm -hmm. And of course, slave patrols dissolved after the Civil War but the formerly enslaved people didn't see 
any much of a change from them transferring from slave patrols to police departments. Because now it was up to the cops to enforce these Jim Crow laws. So for 80 years, Jim Crow laws mandated separate public spaces for blacks and whites, such as schools, libraries, water fountains, and restaurants. And enforcing that was part of the police's job. And blacks who broke the law or violated social norms were often beaten and endured horrific violence from the police. And then meanwhile, the authorities didn't punish perpetrators when blacks were lynched. They didn't give a fuck. As a matter of fact, shit, they would even participate. They would allow citizens to come into the jails and pull out people and lynch them right there in front of the fucking police station. And so the purpose of the police was to patrol black and brown people, not necessarily to seek out or punish crime. And this is a, an important distinction to make. It really is. If this is where it sure it's is. evolved from, I mean, roots of a poisonous tree bear poisonous fruit. So by the late 19th, 19th century, uh, unions were organizing and labor unrest was widespread. In New York City, had 5,000 strikes alone involving almost a million workers from 1880 to 1900. Chicago saw 1,700 and over, and that was involving over half a million workers. And these were called riots. So, and of course this concerned the local economic elites. They decided to brand these strikes as riots and the police were called in to break up the criminal activity of rioting and looting. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like renaming people searching for justice and fairness yep. into riots. There you go. So from the beginning, American policing has been intimately tied to not the problem of crime, but the demands of the American political economy. And the role of the police in the United States has always been defined by economics and politics, not crime or crime control, regardless of what the fuck they tell you. So, so now, so now by the sixties, the, there's a massive social and political change that's happening on a countrywide scale in the United States. The civil rights movement was challenging white homogeny in the South and racist social policies in the North. In 1967 and the 1968 school years, there were 292 mass demonstrations on 163 college campuses around the country. And all this political instability was further antagonized by a series of political assassinations. President John F. Kennedy was killed in 1963 Martin Luther King Jr. was killed in 1968, along with Senator Robert Kennedy. And the attempted assassination of Governor George Wallace in 1972. Now, he was shot five times, but he lived. He was the last politician in the states to run on the segregation platform. And in the black community, Malcolm X and Megar Evers were killed. So national commissions 
were created to investigate the riots and the political instability and frequently and universally pointed to the police as being a social tension, always. The police and the criminal justice system was, was twofold. First, in 68, as part of the Omnibus Crime Control and Safe Streets Act, large sums of federal money were made available for rather cosmetic police community relation programs, which were mostly media focused attempts to improve the police image. Think officer friendly, that media campaign. And by the eighties, many police departments had begun to consider a new strategy with community policing. And community policing emphasized close working relations with the community, police responsiveness to the community and community and common efforts to alleviate a wide variety of community problems, many of which are social in nature. And community policing is the latest iteration of efforts to one, improve relations between the police and the community and two, decentralize the police. So in response to the overwhelming body of scholarly literature, which finds the police have virtually no impact on crime, no matter their emphasis or role, provide a means to make citizens feel more comfortable about what is seemingly an insoluble American dilemma. Like, how the fuck do we get out of this? So when we look at American policing today, it now appears likely that a new emphasis on science and technology, particularly related to citizen surveillance, uh, is taking hold. A new wave of militarization is reflected in the spread of SWAT teams and other paramilitary squads. There's uh, small local agencies spending millions of dollars in budget money on uh, military uh Basically, I don't know what the word for it is, a military flea market. You go and buy someone's used freaking tanks and armor, um, creating police paramilitary squads for all intents and purposes. I mean, for what Lord only can, Lord only knows. Uh, I've had terrible conspiracy theory nightmares about it. Uh, but there's something to be said about, uh, you know, white supremacist police officers uh, being armed with tanks and weapons that are a uh, military, you know, grade stuff. It's, it's a little concerning. Oh yeah, definitely. Right. Uh, there's also a new emphasis on community pacification through community policing. Uh, and all are, are, they're all destined to replay the failures of history as the policies of the future. In terms of community policing, there's concerns of community policing being a method of just spying on local grassroots organizers. And then all of this is compounded by the availability of technology. You have something recent, we have something recently that came out called the Blue Leaks. What it was was a hack of several, basically what they call fusion centers that uh, basically amalgamated and collected data between local and state level authorities and federal authorities because they weren't really sharing data previously. But as they've all been collecting this data, they needed to sort of put it all together and share with each other. So they've created these fusion centers where all of this data is collected and stored so that it can be shared out. And what they're really doing is they're collecting civilian data. Uh, for what though? Because what The Intercept found 
is that some of this data is really just asinine nonsense. For example, there was a student who was looking and surveying uh, lawyers for potential pro bono work for supporting Black Lives Matter people who were like arrested during protests. That was forwarded and then logged in this system as something that was um, concerning. I mean, nobody really knows what this data is being used for. Somebody apparently had put in a report that three girls wearing hijabs were recording a building, which apparently is immediately suspect, even though it's their legal right to do so. YouTube comments are, are reported to this by Google automatically. So I guess, you know, if, if it's... What? If it's currently a terrorist problem to tell people that you bang their mom for posting a stupid video on YouTube, um, I guess that's where that data is being collected. Wow. So I didn't, right. So I, I, there's apparently 16 million lines of data, and I didn't get the chance to go through any of them. But um, according to this, it was very, very easy to hack these data collect uh, these data collection centers, uh, which of course you know casts a big shadow over our data as if there isn't one already because you know of, of everything we're hearing about Russian interference. Um, right. But uh, on top of that, the data that's being collected, that's stuff that's being uploaded and put in these fusion centers where they're holding all this data is also um, stuff where some angry right-wing lawyer is mad that some Antifa little girl is asking to see if he might be a lawyer for uh, BLM and that is stored. And so, again, we don't know what's going to happen with that information. Uh, anything is just speculation. But it's really concerning that there is a space for that data to be stored. Or at the very least, if you don't want that, just throw it away. You know? Mm -hmm. um, right. So it's something to, to look into more deeply. Um, but in terms of women in policing, let's talk a little bit about the history of women's role in policing, because one of the big responses to critiques of policing, uh, especially from women, is what about the women cops? We need the women cops. So let's talk about the history of that. Basically, in 1845, New York started hiring matrons. Uh, the matrons were basically there for moral reform. They were, they were hired by the police department at the behest of the American Female Moral Reform Society. Portland also started to hire matrons, women to work to protect the moral safety of young women and girls. Uh, in 1905, Lola Baldwin was taken on as, uh, as an officer in charge of social workers. In 1910, the LAPD hired Alice Stebbin Wells as their first like official female police officer. But ultimately, the role of women in policing was mostly social work. So as it says here, difficulty there was difficulty in defining the rules of women up to that point. The job description for women officers has been varied and overlapped with duties that we now consider to be social work rather than law enforcement. Uh. Um, prior to that, also sometimes women would be hired as cops for death benefits for their husbands if they were widowed. But so again, really the role of women in policing was, was minimal. And if anything, their job was to be uh, a nurturing presence for women and young men who were in the system. And they did this because of women's inherent nurturing qualities. Oh, there that um, is. Our, where know, our lady brain stores the inherent nurturing quality. 
and our love right. for pink and sparkles, right? So if, well, I mean, you know, it's it's because of the boobs, frankly. It's because oh. we store our inherent nurturing qualities in the tits. Mm. Um, and I so I wear both of my nurturing qualities uh, under a hoodie to make sure that nobody can see them. There you go. Uh, <laughs> but um, so women were always primarily in this role of social workers. They were, um, again, gendered and placed in, in that role in the hierarchy of uh, dealing with moral weakness. They were not of equal status, nor did they, did they have equal duties with male police prior to 1972. And that was when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 made it so that in 1972, they sued to make the, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 apply to public agencies, which included the police. So the result of that is that women started to enter the police force in 1980. Uh, women made up about 5% of police officers. In 1995, it increased to 9.8% in 2005, 11.2% .2 in 2004, 2014, 11.9% in 2018, 12.6%, and then presently 12.9% of officers. So what we're seeing is that despite 40 plus years, we're still clearly a major minority, a major minority, um, a minority um, mm. in police departments. So seeing more, more policing among women as the solution to this is not really a thing because of issues like sexism within the department itself it, it is a male supremacist profession where they ex where women experience disadvantages based on their sex as well as sexual harassment and sex discrimination in fact there was a study uh where they discovered that men that male recruits regularly belittled and objectified women adopting the phrase there ought to be a law against bitches as their mantra when joking about female police recruits and women in general. Uh, this is what you have when you have a, a, a male-oriented job, a male-oriented industry, wow. and a male-oriented identity that goes along with it. So, so in years uh, that have come and gone, there have definitely been efforts to hire more police women uh, using something called consent degrees, which consent degrees, consent decrees, which are basically statements indicating an intention to hire more women. And the thing is, is that the numbers tend to revert back uh, after that. So it, it doesn't really matter, right? Like there's okay. not a big push to get women into the police force. This is a male supremacist institution. Right. Because there should be a law against bitches, right? <laughs> and and that's that sums up the culture of policing today. I don't see that it really has changed. And I it to me this is grim picture. I I don't know. Over half officers would not report another officer for covering up a crime. A majority of police officers believe that bad police are not held ac accountable. And the bottom line is the police want more police. The public don't. Right. So let me explain. This is uh, coming from a survey done by Pew Research called Behind the Badge. So when presented, now this, there, there was a lot of information in this. And if you went through, it would probably take you several hours. There's like, I think, 11 long pages of details. A lot. Yeah, it was a lot of detailed analysis. And so we tried to go through it and pull out the, the most pertinent pieces of information that we felt that would be suitable for our argument. Um, 
So in talking about morality versus breaking department rules, by a ratio of 57% to 40%, officers say that they would advise a fellow officer in a department where in a, in a situation where they had to elect between uh, doing the right thing or not doing the right thing and just reporting it. They would rather do the right thing rather than following the rules. So that right there is your blue wall of silence. So when presented with a dilemma, now here was the dilemma that they presented for this. Imagine that you're driving along the street and you see a vehicle in a ditch. You investigate and you find that the drunk driver behind the vehicle, behind in, in the vehicle in the ditch is one of your fellow police officers. And you elect to drive the officer home instead of reporting them or bring you know bring them in arresting them. Uh, so the question is, if you knew someone else who did that, would you report them? Fifty-three percent believe that their peers would not report an officer covering up for a colleague. So just to clarify what this means, this doesn't mean that they themselves are making the decision as to whether or not they fall they would follow that rule. It means 53% believe that the peers that they work with would not report that officer. So that means they believe that they have to be accountable for that wall of silence. Mm-hmm. Wow. So that's that's over half, um, which is really, really significant. Uh, and that's your, your blue wall of silence right there. Yeah. So additionally... They, at the same time, they feel that a majority of officers uh, are who are doing a poor job are not held accountable. So they themselves feel that they are not held accountable for doing a poor, a poor job. In terms of use of force and intervening in use of force, 26% feel that their use of force guidelines are too restrictive and 34% feel the guidelines are just not useful. So these are the restrictions on the use of force that they're supposed to that they're supposed to maintain, which we talked about earlier. They're the ones who are making that judgment, and yet a, a good quarter of them feel like those for, those those restrictions themselves are too restrictive, and another thirty something percent feel that the guidelines are not useful at all. That is crazy. That is crazy. Uh, Additionally, younger officers and white officers are more likely to become callous and callousness is connected with using aggressive tactics. When it comes to issues of gender and race, 43% of women believe men are treated better compared with only 6% of men who feel that women are treated or uh, who feel that men are treated better. So there's a difference in a perception of who is treated better, that women recognize men get preferential treatment and men don't recognize that treatment. In fact, they think that women are treated better, which I think is probably pretty typical when it comes to perceptions of men and women in several fields. Um, A third of men feel that women are treated better. Across all uh, all ethnicities, women believe men are treated better, while among all all ethnicities of men, they all think women are treated better. In terms of the protests, uh, 68% believe that protests that are happening right now as a result of police brutality are a result of anti-cop bias. Now, this is really significant. 
wow, really? So they think that these people are demonstrating because they just hate cops. They just want to hate on some cops. Huh? Right. But a more revealing stat comes up later on. It says, well, 67% believe that these deaths that are happening, Breonna Taylor, Sandra Bland, are isolated and not part of a broader problem. When you look at it by race, 57% of black officers feel there is a systemic problem. Ah. So we are seeing a difference in perception based on the race of the officer. And then here's the final piece of information that is very confusing to me. And you can tell me what you think, Jemay. It says 76% of officers say they are reluctant to use force as a result of high profile cases. That but feels facetious to me. Isn't the popular rhetoric about police use of force that they feel afraid and so they use more force? Right. That's the rhetoric that we're seeing from the right in terms of why police brutality is happening. So is it that police are reluctant to use force or are they so afraid that they use force? What's really happening here? I think, I don't know. To me, this reads, it just, this just can't be right because it's like they don't see the violence that they inflict on people or they don't think that they qualifies as violence i'm not sure it's, and, it's a big issue yeah it's a and, big and honestly they they almost got it right in regards to the demonstrators being anti-cop well fuck yeah you're gonna hate the person that is doing this shit to your community for real though you know, these are thugs. This is what a thug is defined as. Everything that these fucking cops are doing. So why would people have any trust? Why would people have any hope that they would be treated fairly and their rights would be respected by the this group of law enforcement individuals? So, and I, I just, even, even with, the FBI warning the country in 06 about the infiltration of white supremacists. You yeah, would, that should have been way more alarming. Right. And you would think if it was a problem, then we would have saw all types of talk about, well, we're, we're going to stamp this out and they can't um, diminish our, our reputation with the public and all of that. None of that happened. It was like, it went over like a fart in the fucking wind. It just it did not gain any type of press. And amongst, here's some of the examples of stuff that we were able to find. In 91, a federal judge in Los Angeles found that members of an LA sheriff's deputies in Linwood Station were involved in a neo-Nazi white supremacist gang and that the officers would deliberately target black and Latino residents of the community. Uh, another example was the OJ Simpson trial mm -hmm. and Mark Furman, the lead detective was revealed to be a racist because they got him on recording using the N word with the hard ER many times. And then when they asked him about it on the stand, he lied about it. So, and he also collected Nazi medals. Yeah, there's no part of that that isn't creepy. Thank you. 
in, in 99 in Cleveland, Ohio, racist and not Nazi symbols were found in three of the six police precincts there. In 2001, two Williamson County, Texas police officers were fired after they tried to recruit another officer into their KKK chapter. I mean, and then this, how do you have that conversation? It's like, yeah, right. How do you I, have I, that conversation? I don't even begin to know how you would approach someone hey, to join the KKK. Okay, so with with all of this info put together, I mean, this demonstrates the formation, development, and current state of the police industry is all about white supremacy and labor control, as well as maintaining the status quo by disrupting the public's attempt at achieving civil rights. And it, it, this is just disgusting. I, I don't see how the U.S. can hold any sort of moral standing over anyone else, given this information. And I, I just... Police officers have been identified as members of other white supremacist groups in California, Florida, Alabama, Louisiana. There have been scandals in over 100 different police departments in over 40 states in which individual police officers have sent overtly racist emails, texts, or made racist comments via social media. And this issue is not limited to just beat officers. Like some of these occurrences have involved high ranking members of their respective police office or respective police forces or federal agencies. Mm -hmm. I, I just, so this is from the bottom to the top. And even with that warning by the FBI, the denial of the problem has only enabled it to continue unabated. And while there have been some moderate success in criminal justice reform in the last decade, the existence of white supremacists in police departments hamper that success. Mm -hmm. It seems that few departments are acknowledging the matter or taking any serious steps to curb this frightening problem. And when an officer is identified as holding racist beliefs, police officers claim that he or she is a lone wolf and completely downplay the possibility that these beliefs are held by others in the department. So I, I just, the, this false narrative that we keep pushing, that we live in this colorblind world and that there is no racial bias in the police department I just don't understand why this persists because this storyline that these biases do not exist in these departments make so that there are no steps to curb this. So all it's doing is festering in um, Michelle Alexandri, Alexander, sorry. She wrote an excellent book called the new Jim Crow. And she successfully outlines the connection between the racial problems of the country and the police, especially after the civil rights era. Many have shared that concern, you know, both before and since her book. This is a, a systemic problem. Say it with me, ladies and gentlemen, this is a systemic problem. I know you've got folks like Lindsey Graham 
or Ben Shapiro saying that it doesn't exist. It's not a systemic problem. It is. And for the fast, past five decades, the federal government has has forbidden the use of racist regulations on state and local levels. You know, this is what they say on paper, right? Oh, yeah. Yet, yet people of color are still more likely to be killed by police than whites. The Washington Post tracks the number of Americans killed by police by race, gender, and other characteristics. And the newspaper data, the newspaper's database indicates that 229 out of 992 of those that died that way in 2018, 23% of the total were black. Even though we're only black people are only 12% of the country. And policing into institutional racism of decades and centuries ago, it still matters because the police culture has not changed as much as it could. And for many black Americans, law enforcement represents a legacy of reinforced inequality in the justice system and a resistance to advancement, even under the pressure from the civil rights movement and its legacy. In addition, the police disproportionately target black drivers. Uh, you said earlier with the stop and frisk in New York, they disproportionately targeted black and Latino men. This, this is what data shows us. And that's why this is so important to keep a hold of data, to show us where there's a problem. When a Stanford right. when a Stanford University research team analyzed data collected between 2011 and 2017 from 100 million traffic stops to look for evidence of systemic racial profiling, they found that black drivers were more likely to be pulled over and have their cars searched than white drivers. They also found that the percentage of black drivers being stopped by the police after dark when a driver's complexion is harder to see from the outside of the vehicle. I This persistent disparity in policing is disappointing because of progress. I mean, it's just, we can't enjoy our progress because this stain remains. It just does. And our latest event was Charlottesville, where a young woman was killed, 19 were injured in 2017. And the horrifying mass shooting of Charleston, where the nine black churchgoers were killed by Dylan Roof. Um, the attack in 2015 that killed two men in Portland who saved a young Muslim woman on a train and the murder of a by a white supremacist of a black man in New York City in 2017. It, it just all of these have just gripped the nation. And when vulnerable minority groups feel threatened, one would imagine that there would be a desire to seek protection from law enforcement and their government, right? Unfortunately, this significant rise in hate group membership and hate ideology is not just seen in the public, but within law enforcement. So some see racism as the cause of this violence against people. And this goes to demonstrate that the formation, development, and current state of the police industry is all about white supremacy. 
and labor control. You betcha. Hey, Radical listeners, don't forget to submit your questions to our Google form on our Facebook page or Facebook group, Radical Women Talk Shit. I mean, there's so much more on this topic. We didn't even get to talk about ghost skins. Those are the the white cops who don't let anybody know what their views are so that they could be there in secret. I mean, we there's there's so much more to go through. Um, but this is the conclusion of part one. In part two, we're going to go into specific analysis of the police in their role of oppressing women as a class. And then after that, in part three, we're going to examine abolition. We hope that you enjoyed part one. I am Kat. I am Jemay. And, and this is Radical Women Talking talk Shit. shit. Bye, everybody. Bye. <laughs> Music by Technoax, T E K N O X dot com.